we're coming back to this morning, and we're going to look at uh, the Ten Commandments. We started the series on the Ten Commandments, and we've done an introduction. We've looked at the first commandment. This morning, we're going to really dig deep into the second commandment, and, and, uh, and it's in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. The first commandment is just really short, you know, make, um, you know have no other gods before me, and, and this one, it's a little longer, and, uh, and there's some description, and, and I'll tell you right off the bat, it's, it's not only this one, but the second commandment, the third commandment, the fourth commandment are commandments that not only are well, not well known, they're all really commonly misunderstood. And we're going to see that in the second commandment this morning. But let me begin by reading it from Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or anything that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love and who keep my commandments. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of this time. I thank you for the privilege of worship and just being disengaging from the world, engaging with you. And Father, now to be able to engage in your word, Father, I pray that it would be a time that we would hear your heart, your voice. I pray that you would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, that somehow your Holy Spirit would speak your perfect truth through a very flawed messenger. I pray your blessing on our time. Help each one of us to have hearts that are open to hear and understand and to apply that which you have for us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're jumping into this, back into the series on the Ten Commandments, and right off the bat, you know, I, I want to almost feel the need to explain, especially after a week off, you know, the whole Jenga thing, and especially if you're visiting, and you're like, walk in, and you've got this Jenga set here, and they have this, you know, staff members playing footsie Jenga, and, you know, what in the world is all that about? And, um, and, and we're using Jenga kind of as an illustration throughout the series, because I think there's some parallel between Jenga and the Ten Commandments. I know it doesn't seem to make sense, but let me explain it. You see, when you play Jenga, you know that there's all these blocks, and, you know, I can take this one out, and I can be careful, and it might weaken the, the, the power, but it's, if I'm careful, it's not going to fall. But meanwhile, you have other blocks. You have this one or some of these down here that because of the way that the game has been played, that the whole tower rests upon these blocks. They're foundational. And if you remove this foundational block, the tower is going to come down. Now, what we're saying here is that we need to think of our lives like a tower. In a sense, we're trying to build our life in a healthy way. And, and likewise, even our culture, we need to think of that as a tower we're trying to build. And there are some blocks that in that tower that are essential by nature. They're foundational. If you take them out, the whole tower is going to fall down. That's what the Ten Commandments are. They're God's foundational truths for building a healthy life and for building a healthy culture. If you remove those foundational blocks by forgetting them, by ignoring them, then over time in our life or as a culture, the result will be that the tower will collapse. And, and, and there's no escaping that. You know, there's no way for me but to remove this block or this block and, and somehow have the tower stay up. And the same thing is true here. That's what God's Word is teaching. In fact, what we will continue to see through the series is that many of the big problems that we have in our culture now, many of the you know, things that are dividing us that are creating such confusion 
can be traced back to removing these commandments, these foundational blocks. So what we're seeing is that the Ten Commandments are, we, we generally understand they're important, but they're probably even more important than what most people think. You see, often we think of them primarily as moral rules that God has given us to follow. And while they are that, they are in reality far more. You see, they aren't just moral rules, they're, they're principles, these ten foundational principles that God has given us to build our life upon, to build our culture upon. The principles that come with the promise. You know, if we build our life upon these things, if we keep them in the right place, they're going to provide a foundation for health and for happiness, both personally and as a culture. But if we remove them, the result will be tragic. The tower will fall like a Jenga tower. Now, throughout the study, what we're seeing then also is we're going to not look at these, these simplistically. They're not just rules, but we're going to try to dig deeper and see that, dig deeper in two different ways. The first is that, in a sense, we're going to examine close. We're going to look deep into each box. And what we're trying to do here is recognizing that God's not just concerned about our behavior. These aren't just rules of do this, and if you do this, you're, you're good. You see, God is always concerned about not only what we do, but even more so who we are with our character. And so each of these is talking about a principle that he hopes to shape our character, and we want to understand it, say, what is the character issue that he's concerned about? But then we're also going to look at this, and we're going to back up, and we're going to see how, as we zoom out, how each of these is, is a principle that, that in a sense, here's, the, here's how it's a block. Here how it, here's how it impacts the things above it. Here's how it's not just a simple rule that's set apart by itself, but it's a principle that literally should change the way that we view our culture, the way that we view our lives, and that impacts so many other things if, as we keep it or as we break it. Now, the first commandments, the first two, we, you know, we've said, again, they're all important, but the first two are the foundation of them all. And uh, the first one we've looked at the last for two weeks, a couple weeks ago. It's quite simply, you shall have no other gods before me. This idea that it's not just a statement about religion. It's not about, okay, when you go to church, make sure you go to a Christian church and you don't have any other gods. And what we saw is that it's, it's calling us to, to practically, it's not only a religious thing. The fact is we can have other gods when we put anything, any person in a place of God where we find our, our primary joy and happiness, security in these other things and people, we've put them in a place of God. And so we talked about that a couple weeks ago, and now we come to the second commandment. And, um, and, and as we said, it's probably one of the most misunderstood commandments because many people understand it to be just a restatement of the first. So a common perception of the second commandment is the first one is have no other gods before me, the second is, especially a God that you make a statue of. Especially those gods, don't put those there. And, and that's very common. In fact, some, some of you are, you know, my background is originally Roman Catholic, some of you have that as well, and in the first week, uh, when we talked about this and gave the list of the Ten Commandments, had a few people who have Roman Catholic backgrounds, and came up and said, well, in the Roman Catholic Church, they taught us a slightly different version of the Ten Commandments, and they do. They actually combine the first and the second commandment as a restatement of the same idea, and then they take the last commandment on coveting, and they divide that into two commandments about, you know, of what we shouldn't covet. But I, I don't think that's really wrong, or I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the right idea. It's, if we see it, all we're doing is we're saying, okay, you know, we have this picture of the ancient times, and they worshiped their gods, and they had the idols, and people bowed down to the gods, and we're saying, okay, that's what God is calling us to do. 
And, and I'm good with that because I don't have any idols. I'm not tempted to worship any idols. Okay, this commandment's going to be really easy. And, and it's not only in ancient times because we, we recognize that there are even religions today where people still have idols that they worship, that are part of their worship. Even some really big world religions that have you know, hundreds of millions of people following them. Hinduism you know, is, is known to have idols as part of their worship. Another big one is Buddhism. Again, people are praying to these idols. That's part of what they are. And again, you might be thinking, but I'm not interested in those religions. I don't have any idols, you know, so I'm good. But before we check that off, here's what I want you to realize. That's not what the first commandment is te- second commandment is teaching us. It's not a restatement of, this, of the first one. It's teaching a very different idea, and the very different idea is really, really challenging. You see, it is teaching us about about idolatry. But what we need to realize is that there's more than one form of idolatry. And it's these two foundations are teaching us two different ways that we can be guilty of idolatry. It's not a restatement of the first saying, you know, don't worship any other gods that have idols. It's God is talking about, don't make me into an idol. When you worship me, don't make me into any kind of image. What it's teaching is it's not just enough that we worship the correct God, but that we need to make sure that we worship God correctly, that we worship him based on truth and what he's revealed about himself. See, again, the first two are both about idolatry. If you don't have the right foundation of a relationship with God and God in your life, you know, everything else is going to fall, but there's two different forms of idolatry. The first one is dealing with the first. The first commandment uh, is one that prohibits us against worshiping false gods. And again, as we said, it's not just, you know, it's, you know, don't worship anyone other than the true God, not just in religion, but practically. You know, don't put your trust in anything. So any person, anything, any, you know, any, or work, anything, or money, anything that we find joy, fulfillment, security, that we find at the core of our being, when we make those things, these good things, God things, we put them in a place of God, and we're guilty of breaking the first commandment. Now, that's one form of idolatry, but the second form is what is being dealt with here in the second commandment. It's saying not only should we not worship false gods, but the second one prohibits worshiping the true God falsely. You see, what God is telling us here is you mustn't worship the true God in a way that, that, you, that you're worshiping who you imagine me to be. You mustn't you know, try to worship me who you want me to be. No, when we worship God, we have to worship who he reveals himself to be. Look at it again in the command, Exodus 24. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is under, uh, in the water or under the earth. Now, here's what we've got to realize. It's, it's, again, the first key is understanding God is speaking of himself. It's not don't worship another God that is an image. Don't make me into an image. That's the first key that we need to understand. And, and again, this is a very different challenge. But even beyond that, what we need to realize is that when he's talking about an image, it's not only physical, but it also can be a mental image of God. That when we put in our mind an idea of what we think God should be, what God is, and we're redefining God according to our own opinions, you see, then we're breaking this commandment. The fact is, it's natural for us to do that. It's natural for us, why? Because, Because God is beyond our comprehension. So we come and we say, well, God is all holy and God is invisible and God is all present and God is all powerful. 
And how do we understand that? And because it's hard to understand, what we tend to do is we tend to try to break him down into a mental image that we can't understand. We try to explain him to make him more comfortable and to fit our comprehension. So, how, you know, we say, I've always envisioned God like this, or God is like this, or God wouldn't do this, or the God that I'm comfortable with would be like this. And the command is, don't do that. And God's saying, it's because I'm beyond your imagination. I don't fit your box. And any time that you try to picture me in a way that makes more sense, that you're more comfortable with, that fits your ideas of who I should be, what you're doing is you're, you're taking away something about who I really am. See, any time any of us tries to make God more understandable by fitting him into a mental image, we're not only taking away, but what we're really doing is we're redefining God according to my desires or my opinions or my cultural standards. And we're shaping him not by who he is, but by who we want him to be. So if we understand this, okay, what is it saying to kind of sum it up? When we look at this whole thing, it's the first two commandments are against idolatry. But the first commandment is about believing false gods. The second commandment is idolatry isn't just believing in false gods. That's part of it. But we can likewise be just as guilty of idolatry when we believe false things about the true God. And that's what he's really trying to deal with. This. Idolatry is holding false beliefs, uh, false thoughts about God that are unworthy of God. Now, think about how we do this. Now, some of it we can see, like with children, when they try to do it, and it's kind of cute. Okay, let me give you an example. You know, there's a story about a, uh, uh, you know, a child that was in Sunday school and the teacher was uh, trying to explain something about God and the idea that God is everywhere and he's all-powerful. And, and, and they asked the kids, you know, how can you know that God is like that, that he's everywhere and he's all-powerful? And a little boy raised his hand and he says, I can know that because God, he's the one that opens the door at the grocery stores. No, no, we can laugh at that and think, okay, we walk in, how's the door open up? And, and, and here you have a child in his experience trying to explain things, and we think that's really cute. But at the same time, we rightly think what a limited view of God, and, and while it's cute, it's really wrong. My friends, here's what we have to realize. We do the same thing. Now, we see a child's limitation, and we think that's cute because we know more than they do, but the fact is that we are just, you know, before God, our understanding isn't really that much greater. And it is our tendency to like a child to come to God and try to define him within the limits of our experience, to try to explain him in a way that we can understand. You see, when the Bible says that he's all-powerful and all, you know, what we do is we try to think of the most powerful being that we can experience, you know, imagine and try to make him a little more powerful. When we think of him being all-loving or all-gracious or what we do is we take our ideas of that and think of the most loving person we can imagine and say, well, that's what Jesus is like. Again, how often do we hear even people say, you know, I think of God as the great architect. You know, he's like the one that puts it all together and I think of God as like his heavenly father, heavenly grandfather that just loves you and just is so, and, and what we're doing is every time we're giving this image, and, and there might even be a little bit of truth in what we're saying, but we're also taking away an awful lot about God and who he is. And God is saying, no, we shouldn't do that because every time we're saying, I think of God like this, what we're doing is we're giving our own imagination, we're, we're defining God by our imagination. See, our sin here is not to worship a false god, but to worship a false idea of the true God. Um, now, now, how do we do this? Let's 
kind of dig back up and say, okay, what is the command saying? And what are ways that we can practically try to make God into an image? And now there's, you know, a couple ways. And again, the first one is, is more obvious, but less common. And that is that we can be guilty of doing this by making any physical representation of God. Now, we're going to see in a moment that even in the Old Testament, they would try to make him into a statue. And no, it's not saying that, but it's not only any graven image, but it, it's any, any formed image, literally. So we can do the same thing, let's say, in paintings. Now, if you go to the Vatican, if you go to you know, certain uh, churches, the Vatican especially, there's, there's all kinds of paintings there that, that all rep, you know, they have all these things representatives of God. I think of the Sistine Chapel is one of the best known. You have the creation of Adam and you have God's, you know, touching Adam and the spark and, and, and we say, well, that's beautiful and, but it's a violation of the second commandment. That's exactly what God is telling us we shouldn't do. And, and no matter where we're at, again, I'm, I'm reminded of a story, again, with a Sunday school teacher and, and uh, you know, they had told the kids, okay, I want you to draw, you know, think of something that is really important and draw a picture of it. And so this one little girl, man, she just was going to town, and the teacher could just tell she was really focused, and all the other kids were done, and she was still really focused. And the teacher comes over and says, so what are you, what are you drawing? And she looks up, and she says, I'm drawing God. And the teacher says, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And they said, well, they will when I'm done with my picture. You know? <laughs> now, again, we think of that as cute, and there's something in us that even as kids that many, some of us may have done that. We want to do that. We, we shouldn't teach our kids to draw God. And we shouldn't think that we should in any kind of, even as an adult, that somebody does a painting, it might be beautiful, but it's not what God wants us to do. It's actually a violation of God's command. You see, I think of, um, of what Jesus said about the nature of God and worship in John chapter 4. He said to the woman at the well, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God isn't physical. And when we give him physical form, we're always taking away from his, two, his true nature. And even on our best attempts, what we do is we might capture a little bit of truth, but we're concealing more than we're revealing. Now, it's not only even in physical image, it's not only a painting, but even if we, through a book or through a movie or something like that, when we picture God, we're still guilty of this. Now, here I know I'm going I'm to offend some people on this one, and... Um, and because I'm going to speak about a, a book particularly that I know some people really like. It's a very well-meaning book, and, and I know some people have liked it, but it's one that violates this commandment. And it's the book made into a movie, also The Shack. Now, if you're not familiar with it, it's basically this book that has this person that goes to the shack, and they meet God, and God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, take on human forms, and interact with this, peop, you know, with this person, and speaks these truths. And and the thing is, is that people love it because it reveals something about God, but it reveals some truth at the same point it's concealing. It's an opinion. Well, if God were to speak to me and, you know, it's, it's not, here's what the Bible says, here's, here's my idea. And as much as there's some truth and some people love it, the fact of the matter is there may be some draw, but this is exactly what the second commandment is telling us we shouldn't do because it's dangerous because we will always conceal more than we could ever reveal. We always hide some more of God's nature than what we see. Now, that's the first way we do it. The second way is less obvious, but is far more common in, that, in our day, and that's when we make an image that is shaped in our imagination. See, this isn't necessarily a physical image. It's a mental image. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, isn't the command say, make no graven image, no shaped image? It's physical. Now, here's what you have to realize. In the Hebrew, the word image and the word imagination actually share the same roots. And think of it this way. If you make a physical image, that physical image starts in your imagination, and then your imagination, then you take it, you put form and shape to something that you imagined. And what God is saying here is it's not just physical. We must not make him any image, any image that is different than what he's revealed himself to be. And whether it's physical that we can see or whether it's in our mind something that we imagine, they're equally as dangerous. He's saying, no, don't imagine me who you want me to be. Instead, believe in me for who I've revealed myself to be. Again, how many times have we heard people, you know, I imagine God this way, or God, the God that I believe in wouldn't do this. And, and the problem is it's even more so an issue in our culture because we live in a world where people think about spiritual truth in totally subjective terms. So everybody, this is the God that I believe. This is my personal belief about God, and it's true for me. And it's such, so, so widely accepted that we sometimes even can struggle with that even, you know, in, in our own faith because we're told that's the way we should think about God but it's an image of God that we've created in our own mind. And the fact that because I think of God that way doesn't make him that way. God exists outside of my imagination. He exists outside of my culture, outside of my ideas. And he's revealed himself in his word, and my ideas about God should come from what he has said about himself, not from my opinions, not from my desires, not from the culture. He's saying, don't worship me as you want me to be. Don't think of me as you want me to be or you think I should be. Worship and think of me as I reveal myself to be as who I truly am. Now, you know why we struggle with this? Because there are things about God that are hard for us to, to really understand. In fact, there's, I think, a couple things. You know, on the one hand, we kind of mentioned beforehand that God is all-powerful and he's self-existent and he exists beyond time. And, and Theologians use the word transcendent. He transcends our experience. And so how do I believe in something that transcends what I can know? And not only that, but he's also sovereign, meaning he's in charge, and he's a creator, and so he decides what's right and wrong, and, and one day we all have to give an account to him, and, and I really don't like that. That's offensive to the culture as well. And so, so our natural response to God's transcendence and sovereignty is what? Is that we want to make him into an image that's more comfortable. So when it comes to transcendence, what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to take this God that we can't understand and somehow explain him in a way that we can't understand, and then we're comfortable with him. Let me give you an example. We're all guilty of this one. How many of us have ever struggled with the idea of the Trinity? All right, the Trinity. God is three persons, one. God is, how do you have three and one? How do I understand it? And what we try to do is we give a physical image. Well, it's like an egg. It's like water. It's like, you know, we have these different things. And the fact is, it's like none of those things. You see, all those things are things that we're saying, here, let me give an image that I can understand. And God is saying, I'm not like any of those things. I'm beyond your ability to comprehend. The fact of the matter is, is that I'm glad that I have a God that I can't comprehend. And for me to, to struggle with him, it's because I can't understand him, I can't believe him. I mean, that's both arrogant on my side, and what a low view of God that I'm holding to. You know, a guy that spoke about this in a way that was really um, powerful and memorable is Francis Chan uh, in his book, Crazy Love. Let me read what he says about this whole, this whole challenge. 
God exists outside of time, and since we are within time, there's no way that we'll ever totally grasp that concept. Now, he's just talking about one aspect of God's transcendence, that he's outside of time, but we can go a whole bunch of those things. Not being able to fully understand God is frustrating, but it's ridiculous for us to think that we have the right to limit God to something we're capable of comprehending. What a stunted, insignificant God that would be. What he's saying here is that, you know, God is outside, and, and for us to insist that I have to understand him, that I have to be able to have a picture in my mind that I can comprehend, we're, we're saying we're really great, and God isn't that much greater than we are, that God has, has to fit. What a stunted view of God that is. And I know I'll talk to people, I can't believe a God that I can't understand. Well, then you just really don't want a God. You know, you just, you just want a nice, comfortable God, not one that is, transcends who we are. He continues on. If my mind is the size of a soda can, now for those in the Midwest, let me interpret that. If your mind is the size of a pop can, um, that's what he means, uh, and God is the size of all the oceans, it would be stupid for me to say that he is only the small amount of water I can scoop into my little can. God is so much bigger, so far beyond our time-encased, air, food, sleep-dependent lives. That's what it is. You have the ocean, and I've got this little pop can, and I'm thinking, God's got to fit into this. And there's no explanation that can be bigger than my little pop can. And what we need to realize is that, no, you know, I can't fit him into this can of my mind. He's infinite. He's so much more than a mental image. Can, and I've got to be comfortable with that. There's an uncomfortability of, I don't comprehend it. And I'm okay because he's God and I'm not. And that's one of the challenges. Now, beyond that, what makes it even worse is that our culture is pressing this. Not only about transcendence, but even more so in the issue of his sovereignty. Because part of the idea of who God is is he's also a creator, so he's the one that defines right and wrong. And there's an idea that one day we will all have to give an account to him. Now, that is really offensive to our culture. And so our world rejects against that. And what they try to do is they say, well, I don't want a God that has final say over my life. So we, again, redefine God into a far more comfortable, manageable God. And so our culture is increasingly saying, okay, well, God, well, he's a God that loves everybody. He's a God that accepts everyone. He's a God that our definition of love and tolerance and acceptance and these things, and, and our culture redefines it. And the things that are offensive, like, like God's justice and, and God's wrath and God's, you know, God's judgment and and even how they define the truth about what love is. You see, our culture changes that. And when we live in the culture, we've got to realize that we have this pressure so that we then are then pressured to increasingly see God through the lens that our culture insists that he must be, even if it's different than what he's revealed about himself. See, what we're doing is we're making God into an image that really grows from our desires and our opinions. It's a God that grows from our imagination, but that imagination is, number one, what we're comfortable with, what we can understand. And not only that, but our opinions and our desires and our morality. You see, it should be a God that's not offensive. I don't want a God that confronts me, that points out my, my sin, that points out the need. I want a God that affirms me, that, is, that, you know, that, that, that affirms not only me, but the values and, and, and morality of my culture. And so we reject the biblical idea of God, the things that are taught clearly in the Bible in preference to the things that we want to believe. Now, here's what I want you to realize, is that if you look out throughout the Bible, this is a problem throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, this is what you consistently see the people of Israel struggling with. 
You see, they lived in a culture where so many people dealt with various gods, were Baals and things like that, and they were represented by these great statues. And the Jewish people kept falling into this trap that, that they wanted to worship Yahweh. They wanted to worship the true God, but they wanted him to be more like all the other gods. They wanted him to approve all the things the other gods were approving. And see, it's the same thing with us. It's the same thing. Let me show you how it played out in the Old Testament. Let me go to a passage many might be familiar with, a couple pages over from Exodus 20, Exodus 32. And it's the story of the people building a golden calf. And so let's look at that. And again, this is, this is often misunderstood. The setting of the story is it's, it's, you know, it's right here in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Moses is still up on Mount Sinai. He's gone up to Mount Sinai. He's been up there probably for some weeks now. God is speaking to him, giving him you know, all this revelation, including the Ten Commandments, including the commandment not to make any other idols. And in, while God is doing this, the people start to make this golden calf. Now, it's common to think that what happened is that they rejected the true God and they, they said, okay, we want, a, we want a God, we want it when the Egyptian gods, let's build one of the Egyptian gods and, and, and one was a calf. And so a lot of people think that, but that's not what happened. Let me show you what happened. Let's go to Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Now, I want to point out a couple things. First of all, when they tell him, make us gods, the word there could be translated singular as well. It's the word Elohim, which throughout the Bible is often used of God, and when it is, it's always interpreted God singular. And, and we're going to see in the context, the context demands that it's singular. So what they're literally saying is, let us make a God for us to lead us out, who will go before us. Now, what was behind the demand? Look what it says. We're told that it was because the people saw that Moses was delayed. He's up there meeting with God. He's absent. And um, now, in reality, what's happening is God is working. God is speaking. God is speaking to them through Moses. They don't know it yet, but God is giving them revelation to give them truth that will guide them. But from their perspective, it seems like God is absent and silent. They don't know if Moses is coming back. They're not sure if God's really speaking to them. They don't know what's going to happen. So what happens is when God is silent, they say, okay, let's fill in, you know, because I don't like God's invisibility, now here, let me imagine a God that I can see and that I can control. So my friends, this is exactly when we get into trouble. Now, how often do we go through times where it's, you know, it's, God's not there. You know, I'm in this, God, I'm praying. You're not answering the prayer. God, aren't, what aren't you doing? And it's like Moses where God is speaking. God is up on the mountain. He's doing something, but we just don't see it, know it yet. And because we don't see it, we're like, well, God, if you don't speak here, let me take control. Let me make you start answering the questions the way that I think you would. So it's often in that silence, just like with the people of Israel, that we fall into the same gap. So when you understand, they're saying, okay, let us, singular God, let us make a God that will go before us. Uh, we don't like having this God that we can't see, this God that disappears on us and, and uh, you know, is gone for this time. We want a God that we can see, that we can hear his voice, and God that we can be comfortable with. We don't like his silence. So what's the problem? They don't have any control over God. If we build this, you know, like all the other gods, they have some control over him. And so that's what, that's what happens. See, God isn't speaking the way they expected, so suddenly now we need to create a, an image of God that fits what we expect. Now look what happens. 
Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, on the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, or it can be singular, this is your God, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now I'm going to say that I think it is singular. Here's what I want you to notice first of all. And he said, if it's this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's not saying, here's a new God. He's not saying, okay, this is a different God. This is the God that was in Egypt. This is the God that we have been serving that has brought you out of Egypt. Now, if you're not clear of that, look at the next verse because it makes it extremely clear. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. All capitals, it's the name Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. He's saying, tomorrow we're going to have a feast, and we're going to worship this calf, and it's Yahweh. See, they weren't worshiping another god. They were taking the true god, and they were making an image of him, and they were saying, okay, now we're going to worship him that way. And then look at the worship. Look what happens in verse 6. They rose early the next morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what happens is they get up early and they offer sacrifices like they should, like they would have the, the true God beforehand. But now that they've made him an idol, after they do what's right, they start adding things. And they say, well, let's also worship him like other, well, let's make it a feast, let's make it an orgy, let's make it, and that's what they did. Because once you start to redefine God and who he is, you also redefine his teaching, his truth. My friends, that's still what we do. You see that happening in our culture. You see that's what we struggle with in our own lives. You know, we, we aren't comfortable with the God who is, so we want to redefine him to feed, fit more into our culture, to fit more into our comfort zone, to fit more into what we can understand. Let's go to the end of the story and look what you see. Going to verse 21. So Moses comes to Aaron. He says to Aaron, what did uh, these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. I <laughs> don't see the humor of that. I mean, this is like the junior high answer of all junior high answers. You know, it's just kind of, I took all this jewelry, I put it in this pot, and, and poof, you know, out came this calf. I don't know how it happened. You know, Moses you know, said, what happened here? And it's basically, I don't know. I, I don't, you, know, you know, were you there when you did it? You know, were you had, you know, and, that's, and this is an incredible answer. Not only that, I want you to see the thinking. What's he saying? Why did he do it? All the people came. All the people demanded of it. This was their opinions. This was their desires. And you have now the leader saying, well, because all the people did it, he shapes his own belief. And he's now leading them down a path where they're leading the, you know, this wrong image of God. My friends, that's the same battle we still struggle with today. I want to let you know, we've got two more points here. They're going to be really quick. They're really kind of summation of things that we're going to spend a lot more time on next week. What I want you to see is that when we struggle with this whole issue, this isn't just about the past. It isn't about what they did then. These are things that we struggle. We still have modern images of God that we build. Now, seldom in our case is it a physical structure. It's, and it's seldom, you know, seldom will it be you know, a statue or even a painting. 
but we are still guilty of the same sin, the same error, the same deception as the people in Israelites did when the golden calf. They might say, we don't believe in Baal. We want to worship God, but we want him to be more like the other gods and the God that we can understand and the God that, um, that we're more comfortable with. You know, I don't know how many times I've talked to people and, and they say, well, I believe in God, but the God I believe in wouldn't do this. The God that I would believe in would do this. He's like this. And and, and, and they're constantly saying things that, you know, might disagree with the Bible, but basically, I, deserve, I reserve for myself the right to define in my own mind what God I'm comfortable with. I, deserve the, I reserve the right and to be able to, to make God a mental image of God that he has to conform to. And if I'm confronted with something different in the Bible, you see, then, then the Bible has to conform to my image rather than letting my ideas about God be conformed to his truth. And so when we have offensive things, well, God, you know, the idea of hell, and how offensive, and how can you say that? How can a loving God do that? And, well, if it's in God's truth, then how do I understand what God is saying? But I can't redefine God to be who I want him to be. And there's so many things like this. And we're going to dive into that more next week and seeing some of these examples of how do we do it and why do we do it. But we've got to realize, again, this, it'd be nice to say, I, I, I like what I used to think about the commandment, and saying, oh, it's just the idols, and I don't have to worry about it. When you understand this, this is something that impacts all of us. We all struggle with it. But I want to just close by saying, okay, how do we deal with it? What's God's answer? Because what we're going to find is that when you look at it, it's, it's, not, just a, it's not just a rule. It's a principle. And the principle is not about what we, just what we do, it's who we are. God's most concerned about our heart. He's concerned about our character. And so when you look at this, he's not only saying, only don't do this, don't make images, don't do mentally, but what is the positive thing that he's calling us to? See, he's ultimately saying, don't make an image of what you imagine, of what you want me to be. But when you understand who I am, understand I am who I revealed myself to be. See, God hasn't left us to ourselves to figure it out or to guess or to say, well, there's this God that's this nebulous idea out there that I just, you know, I just don't know. No, God has revealed himself so that we can know him. We can know him. We will never fully comprehend him. For me to think that I have to fully comprehend him and understand him, well, that's being really arrogant. I will never comprehend him, but I can know him and know something about him. And part of what I know about him is that he's far greater than my ability to comprehend. And so it has to grow from what God has revealed about himself. But, but here's the interesting twist. Part of what God has revealed about himself is that he's revealed himself in an image. So I thought we're not supposed to get, make God into an image. We're not, but look what it says in Colossians 1.15. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation that God has revealed himself and taking on human flesh in this God that we can't understand. He's invisible and he's, un, you know, and God says, okay, let me take on human flesh so that you can see me, so that you can understand me. It's, it's God's most complete revelation of who he is so that we see in Jesus Christ something about God. And we're drawn to the person of his son. But again, our idea of Jesus shouldn't come from who I think Jesus is or what I want him to be, it should be from what God has revealed about himself through the Bible. But not only that, 
When you understand who Jesus is, it's not only that God has revealed himself, but he's revealed how we can know him. Because Jesus Christ came to take on human flesh, ultimately to die on the cross for our sins, so that through his life and death, we could have relationship with God. And so God not only calls us to see him as an image, but even in our worship, he has called us to use an image. Wait a second, I'm uncomfortable. What are you talking about? Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he's saying part of worship is I want you to take an image. I want you to take an image of bread, and I want you to periodically meet together, and you break this bread, and you give it to people, and you say, This bread is an image. We're not worshiping the image, but it points us to the one that we do worship to Jesus Christ, who not only came, but we're reminded of what he did. That that bread that was broken was his body that was broken on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And then he continues on. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this, in, uh, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance in me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we worship with an image an image that points us towards God's self-revelation. Not an image of our own creation, but an image of God's revelation. And what does it tell us? Yeah, that Jesus, God, the second person, became man. And he not only became man to teach us something about God by the way that he taught and the way that he lived, but also something ultimately about God's love and about God's grace and about God's just, justice and his holiness and about how we could not only know about God, but how we could know him personally. And we know him personally not through our behavior, not through our actions, not through religion, not through all the answers that are out there in the world, but we know him personally through the work of Jesus, through his body that was broken for us, through his blood that was spilled for us, through our not only acknowledgement of what he did, but our proclamation of faith that we believe that, we trust in him. And through our faith in what he has done for us, we have that, that not only knowledge, that relationship with Almighty God. 